Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm joined today by Vijay Boyapati, writer, thinker, builder in the crypto space for, for some time. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Eric. Awesome. You're interesting because you're both an engineer and technologist in the space and have a deep you know, understanding appreciation for, for the economics of the space. And you've been thinking about Austrian economics for you know almost two decades now. So why don't you give just a brief background of your interest in Austrian economics, Bitcoin, and crypto broadly, and how those have evolved over the years. This is more the political side, but I was introduced to libertarianism by some colleagues at Google when I, I joined. I joined Google back in 2002, and and they introduced me to people like Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand. And I distinctly remember one of my colleagues giving me an old VHS tape, which had an interview of Ayn Rand by Phil Donahue in the 70s. And I remember watching that interview and it just the feeling of being hit by a bolt of lightning like it was I'd never heard anything like that before growing up in Australia and then I started exploring some of the prominent figures prominent libertarian figures and I came across uh, the Austrian school of economics people like Ludwig von Mises and and Murray Rothbard and they focused a lot more on the economics uh, libertarian free market economics and so I got very interested in that and and started studying studying economics while I was at Google and then I I left Google in 2007 to campaign in the presidential election. I campaigned for Ron Paul, who was the only candidate who was saying anything about the Federal Reserve. It was kind of amazing. He'd get up on stage and say, you know, we need to audit the Federal Reserve and all the other candidates. Like, what the hell are you talking about? I've been interested for, you know, probably about 15 years now and spent a lot of my own time studying economics. And I wrote a paper about the inflation deflation debate in, in 2010. I gave a lecture at the University of Washington on healthcare economics. It's kind of like a side interest. I'm actually a computer scientist, but I think, you know, the great thing about Austrian economics is anyone can pick up a, a book and learn about it. It's not deeply mathematical, and so it's very accessible. And I think it's it's something that anyone who's interested in how economic phenomena arise, it's pretty easy to get uh, a basic background in how how the Austrians see how, how these things come, come about. about. Let's get into it. How do you define Austrian economics? Uh, how does it compare to other branches of economics, other factions, other branches of economics more broadly? And I'm curious why it's become so fringe. I mean, perhaps before Bitcoin, it was sort of seen as fringe. Like I didn't learn about it when I, I majored in economics in college. Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing that is kind of strange already is that you said, tell me about these different schools of economics. I mean, you know, there are other schools like Marxist, Chicago, Keynesian and Austrian, you know, you may have heard of some of these other schools of economics, but it's strange to think that there's this field of study where there are different schools. This isn't, isn't true of physics or chemistry. There isn't like a Chicago school of physics or a Marxist school of chemistry. So that already is a, a, a very interesting thing that economics has sort of splintered into these different these different schools of thought and and that these schools of thought are completely incompatible i mean if you believe in the marxist school of economics then you really think everything about the austrian school is wrong and vice versa that's that's a it's a very strange thing but so the austrian school of economics i i would define as the the un, the understanding of economic phenomena that we observe in the world are best understood as the as the result of the actions and choices of individuals rather than a field where you you analyze aggregate statistics and try and figure out what the relationships between say CPI and employment are and another way of thinking about it is Austrian based on an understanding of how humans act to achieve economic ends through scarce means so scarce factors of production so an, uh, even another way of saying it is Austrians build up uh, a deductive science and it's kind of closer to something like geometry where you you start with a bunch of axioms about how you believe humans act axioms about things like marginal utility that people value the first item of a good that they get more than the nth item that's one of the axioms of austrian economics so that that's a deductive way of building up economic theory whereas other schools of economics are more inductive and and they pretend to be like physics which is you you go out and you do a bunch of experiments and you you 
you try and figure out like how important certain variables are and how they relate to each other looking at statistics and, and you treat it more like a traditional science so i i'm a big believer in the austrian school as the the only really valid way of of coming up with economic theory and i i think the the trying trying to follow these other professions like physics and chemistry is a big mistake that economists make and and results in in theories which just completely hollow and don't hold up over time so they'll they'll believe something is true and then they'll find out like a decade later it's completely <laughs> not true so yeah that, that's a that's perhaps a long-winded way of saying it there one one is kind of a deductive school of thought whereas the other schools are more inductive why are there multiple schools of, of economic thought and not multiple schools of physics thought is is it just the fields are different or is one of one what do people think about it the wrong way well, you know, historically, economics was a deductive science. It was more like the the Austrian school of economics is basically what economics was in the the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. And then, you know, in in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, I think a lot of people saw that the scientific method, when applied to the natural sciences, was really successful. We started learning all of these things that we didn't know before. And, and so a lot of people thought, well, why don't we just apply this method to economics and it's going to work. But there's a really, there's a really big difference between how economics, uh, economic phenomena come about and how physical phenomena come about. With physical phenomena, basically the idea is that you can isolate variables and you can do experiments to isolate variables and, and, and see what causal relationship that they have to each other. With economic phenomena, it's, it's really, really hard to isolate variables because economic phenomena are inherently complex. And you can have a situation where you try something like increasing the minimum wage in one situation and you have an experiment and then you can try it in a different situation. But the situations are not comparable. They're not experiments that you you've you're able to isolate variables like the people could be completely different one group of people might be rich one group of people might be poor the effects might be completely different i i think there was a, a sort of admiration for the progress that was made using the method of the natural sciences and some people thought we we should apply this to, to economics i just think it's it's based on a poor understanding of how economic phenomena come about. With, with physical phenomena, you're looking and observing at physical objects which are, don't have any don't any don't have any motivation of their own. Whereas humans have motivation, and and that motivation is is very complex. It comes from a whole bunch of psychological phenomena that we can't necessarily observe. So I, I just don't think it's a science where isolation of variables is possible. And I think you know, observing, I think, some of the failures of economics, inability to predict in a way that you could predict things in physics or in chemistry, uh, shows that the method is not really the correct method to use for economics. You, you mentioned that, you know, Austrian economics was sort of mainstream economics was in the 18th and 19th century. When did that change? Why did that change? And what, what is this data or trace sort of the evolution of how Austrian, Austrian economics has evolved and been received in mainstream since then? Like I said, I think economics in the 19th century and, and before that was practiced in a way that's very similar to the way Austrians practice it today. And then, like I said, there was a, I think a lot of people wanted to apply the method of the natural sciences to economics. And that's, that's where it changed and it started changing in the early mid 20th century. And, and I think one of the reasons is that Austrian school of economics is kind of a free market school of economics. It, it explains its, it, attempts to explain the limits of public policy, which is pretty unpopular if you're a politician. Politicians are the ones with the power, and, and power creates opinion. So I think there's also a sort of political incentive here where schools of economic, economic thought naturally arise to cater to what politicians want to hear, that you can have your cake and eat it too. And it, it's kind of nice to think that if you're a politician, you can just tweak one variable and then you're going to solve this social problem. Like people are... that. People don't have enough money to live, so let's just increase this variable, the minimum wage, and it's going to solve the problem. It's nice to think that that kind of thing is possible and that you can engineer things in that way. The Austrian School of Economics is known for saying, well, that, that kind of thing is not possible. You, you're, you're trying to achieve a certain means using a certain policy, and given our deductive reasoning, that's just not going to happen if you 
again, going back to the minimum wage, if you increase the minimum wage, you're not going to lift people out of poverty. You're just going to make it illegal for people to work for less than that wage. And so you're going to increase unemployment for people who aren't productive enough to work at a level that's higher than the minimum wage. And so they reason deductively that way and say, this isn't going to do what you think it's going to do. So I guess my point here is that there's a political incentive to fund schools of economic thought, which say things that politicians want to hear. And I think this is why if you look at academia, there's probably 10 Keynesian economists for every Chicago school economist, and there's probably 10 Chicago school economists for every Austrian economist. So very, very rare to find an Austrian economist in academia just because no one really wants to fund them. It's one of, one of the great Austrian economists, Ludwig von Mises, fled the Nazis and came over to America in the, the 40s, and he couldn't find a job anywhere. And it's amazing. This guy is one of the most brilliant economists of all time, in my opinion. And, and he had to rely on um, patronage, finding a wealthy person who was willing to give the university some money to fund him and to let him do research. So it's a, it's a little bit sad, I think, of political expediency is Trump the pursuit of truth. Beyond academia and into sort of yeah, how economics is, is practiced at the government level, you know, I, I read about, or, you know, people like to say that sort of, I think it's like the 1870s or around, you know, the end of the that, that century was sort of this golden era sort of you know, innovation and, and flourishing, and that soon changed when we, is it when we left the gold standard? Can you, can you trace a little bit about how people's, like, the beginning of the end, so to speak, for, for Austrian economics? I'm a, a big believer that the gold standard has a very profound impact on on how capital was allocated in, in, a, in an economy. And when you're on a gold standard, it's very hard to print money. It's hard to create new money. And so this tends to increase the, the desire to save money because if you, you save money in gold, it'll slowly but surely increase its value over time. So it shifts the the market marginally towards savings versus uh, consumption and investment. And so, you know, the, the Keynesian and the Chicago schools of economics tend to favor money supply that increases over time because they believe that the the growth of an economy happens through consumption, that people spending money and buying things is how an economy grows. Whereas the Austrians really believe that an economy grows through investment and capital formation and entrepreneurial activities where people, you know, build a new factory or uh, invent a new mousetrap or something. And, and, by doing this, they they produce wealth that benefits all of society. It's not it's not people consuming willy nilly that makes us rich. It's people inventing new things and building new things. I, I would also say that I think the, the end of the gold standard had had a really big impact on on government's ability to inflate their money supply. So if you look at the money supply in the U.S., it's fairly constant for the first. 150 years of the, the nation's history, and then it, it starts increasing rapidly in uh, after the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt basically confiscated everyone's gold, all the U.S. citizens, because back then dollars were backed by gold. You could go to the bank and say, "Is a $20 bill? Give me an ounce of gold." Uh, and so once you remove that backing, it makes it easier to inflate. Uh, the dollars were still redeemable for gold, but only by nation states. So France could come to the US and say, "Hey, look, we've got a billion dollars. Give us the gold behind the billion dollars." And then the the US removed that backing in the early 70s. President Nixon removed that. And then if you look at the money supply after that, it's just absolutely exploded. So now the US is able to rack up these massive, massive debts and I think this is the cause of these periodic financial crises is that money is just being created out of thin air and that that causes people to consume and invest and speculate much more than they would in, in, a, in a hard money standard, in a, in a true gold standard. And what, what's the best version of their argument for people who believe that you know, consumption is what drives our economy? I guess two things. One is what, what do they fundamentally believe about the world? That's different from what you believe. Like what, what underlies that that belief in consumption? And then two, what, what's the you know most uh, charitable interpretation of their their argument? I, I guess the most charitable, if I was trying to be a kind-hearted fellow, would be that the free market has a problem, and that the problem is that it has these periodic business cycles. And if the government doesn't step in and intervene and act as a consumer, a major consumer in these times of crisis, then you're going to have massive unemployment. People are people are going to be living in abject poverty, and and so the government has a role 
to to step in and and fix these crises. And the way it does it is by printing money and using it to build things and hire people. And those people then have money that they can use to spend. And the people who receive the money, the spent money, then have more money. And so it flows into the economy and it produces more jobs and it produces more wealth. I think that's, you know, that's the basic view. I, I don't buy it at all. I think it's completely incorrect. But I think that's where a typical Keynesian would come from, that that type of viewpoint. Yeah, let's talk about the factions within Austrian economics. There are two main factions in Austrian economics, and and perhaps before talking about those factions, we should talk about like banks and bank lending, and and yes. that that'll give some context for for where, why these two factions have developed. If you go back, you know, a long time, banks were basically just storage services. So gold was money prior to the 20th century, and and the way banks would work is you'd you'd go to a bank and say, here's my gold coin. I'm I don't want to store it in my house. I don't want to get robbed. So and it's kind of cumbersome as well to carry gold around. So you go to a bank and say, here's my gold. Can you store it for me? And they'd give you a certificate saying Eric deposited twenty dollars worth of gold. And then you'd go actually around and use this certificate and pay for things with the certificate. And that's quite convenient because carrying a paper certificate around is much more convenient. You can actually divide the paper certificate into smaller ones and, and use those. So it's, it's good for commerce. It's good for storage. It's good for security in a way. Like it, it's you, you believe that perhaps these banks have better economies of scale for security so they can protect themselves. But the interesting thing is at some point, someone, one of, the, one of these banks realized hey, you know, we have all this gold that people have deposited with us and we've given them certificates so they can come and redeem their gold. But most people don't redeem their gold. It just sits here. And so, you know, we have something like 80% of the gold is in our vault at any one time. So why don't we just create more certificates than we have actual gold? And we people are treating these certificates as if they are gold. They're using them as money. So let's just make more of them and... They're being treated as money. So let's lend these money certificates out and we can earn interest on them. We'll lend them to businesses. The businesses will use them. And they, if they're, they're profitable, they will get some interest back. And so that's that's what fractional reserve banking is. It's it's lending more certificates or more money out than you have in reserve in your bank. And some Austrians see this as deeply problematic. And some even say this is fraud. This is just outright fraud. You're lying about you're producing, like if a car salesman did this and you you left your car at a parking lot or something like that and they created certificates for the cars and they gave out more certificates than their actual cars, you'd, you'd be sued for fraud. That They don't exist. So some Austrians say this is fraud and that school of thought you could call the full reserve banking of faction. You'd call the full reserve banking faction. And, and they say that banks should only issue certificates equal to the amount of gold or the amount of reserves that they have. The free banking school says, well, you know, as long as you're open about this, if you're open about it and you tell people that when you bring your certificate, you may, the gold may not be there because we're lending it out, then it's okay. It's okay for you to go out, for us to go out and lend this and make some interest. Because the good thing is then if we're making interest on, on the deposits by lending them out, and creating more certificates, then we don't have to charge you fees for storing your gold. And that's that's actually pretty attractive. You go to a bank and you deposit your gold, and you have the belief that you can get your gold out whenever you want, but you also don't have to pay for the storage because the bank is making interest on the gold. So th- those are the two big schools of thought. The full reserve banking faction would say that the lending out of these certificates is the fundamental cause for the business cycle. It's not a market phenomena. It's a, it's a sort of something that happens based on the fraud of believing that there's more reserves than there actually are. So this all works fine, right? The bank lends out these certificates to businesses and the businesses, if they're profitable, will pay the interest. But if you periodically get a crisis where some of these businesses start failing for whatever reason, maybe the crop yield for the year is bad and some of these businesses fail, then what will happen is people will say, there are more certificates and there's gold in the bank. And I'm worried that the bank isn't going to be able to get back their gold because th- these businesses are failing and they're not not only they're not going to be able to pay interest they're not even going to be able to return the, the certificate and so people would run to the bank with their certificates and say give me my gold back so you get in the 19th century you get these 
bank runs where there'd be a huge line outside the bank where people would be demanding their gold back. And, and then suddenly the banking system would collapse. People wouldn't trust banks anymore. And you have this huge deflation where all of this paper money that's out there, people lose their trust in it and prices start dropping really rapidly and you have a recession and people become unemployed. And this is the business cycle. And this is how the full reserve school of Austrian faction would explain the business cycle and why we have a periodic business cycle. The other faction would say that, oh, well, banks can banks can figure this out. They can figure out the amount that they should be lending so it's safe. I, I'm skeptical. I, I'm a believer that we, we should have full reserve banking and that it would just be much healthier for the economy in general. We wouldn't have these periodic crises like the, the big crisis in 2008. And, and I, I think something like Bitcoin allows us to to build a full reserve monetary system for the first time since gold. You wrote a paper, was it 2010? Yeah, yeah. You talk about um, some, it, some of these concepts. Talk, talk a little bit about what you were trying to achieve in that paper with the main tenets of the work. Back in 2008, uh, when there was a huge financial crisis, the Federal Reserve created probably one or two trillion dollars worth of new reserves. That's like basically printed a trillion dollars. And a lot of Austrians thought, by printing a trillion dollars, these trillion dollars are going to sit. The, the way it works is the Federal Reserve prints the money, then they go out and buy assets, typically U.S. Treasury bonds, and then the, those dollars just sit in banks. And, and the idea that the Austrians had is that these banks are going to lend out these reserves, and they're going to multiply the the money supply, and we're going to see huge inflation. We're going to see a lot of them predicted hyperinflation, like the kind of thing you see in Venezuela, where the inflation rate is like a hundred percent per year, and and the price of bread, you know, is is constantly doubling, and people are rushing to get rid of their cash because they're worried that. So everything's going to be more expensive tomorrow. And and my view was that a lot of Austrians didn't quite understand how bank lending worked, and they didn't understand the causality of bank lending. And the fact that there were more reserves in the banking system, the banks had more money to, to loan out, didn't mean that they were going to loan them out. And most of these banks were completely insolvent, so they, they didn't really want to lend out. And that there wasn't anyone, there weren't any good sort of credit lending opportunities anyway because everyone was bankrupt they they'd bought these houses that they couldn't afford and they were defaulting on loans so there weren't weren't good lending opportunities so i thought what would happen is that these reserves would basically sit in the banks and do nothing and and would not cause inflation and might cause like a sort of mild form of deflation where where price levels stayed fairly constant and i think that's basically what happened and i i think i turned out to be correct in that prediction. But it, it, it was pretty controversial. A, a lot of Austrians completely disagreed with me. And there was a paper written to rebut what I had, what I had written. But I stand by what I said. I think it, it turned out to be correct. You, you mentioned that you, know, you campaigned with, with Rand Paul, who was you know, talking about auditing the, the Federal Reserve. Ron, Ron Paul, Rand said. Yep. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, there's sort of mixed opinions on what the Federal Reserve should, should be doing, whether it should exist at all, and the role for it. What, what do you think is the, the ideal role of the Fed today, uh, I, I'm one of the people who doesn't think the Fed Fed should exist. And you know, if if I was the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, I'd probably try and back the U.S. dollar with Bitcoin, so that you know the U.S. dollar used to be backed by gold. You could hand in your your U.S. dollars at a bank, and you'd get gold back. I think we could we should do the same thing, except with Bitcoins. I think that would be even better. And and uh, that's a nice segue. How has Bitcoin changed your view of money? And and through that definition. Let's talk about why. Elaborate more, unpack more. Let's say Ben Bernanke is listening in, or, or Jenny Allen, or whoever, and uh, asking for you know a de- like a detailed explanation of, of why they should do that. Maybe you can get into that. How has it changed my view of money? I think so. This isn't really related to Federal Reserve policy, but one of the things that I think I've changed my mind on was that the Austrian school sort of talks about how money must arise as a commodity, and that value, uh, the the value of money. Money has value today because it had money yesterday, had value yesterday. And this gets you into this kind of infinite regress where economists in the 19th century didn't really understand how to resolve this. The Austrians say that the way you resolve this is if you go back far enough in time, you'll find that money is a commodity like gold. It had some other value. And then eventually over time, it became more and more useful as money. And and that's how you trace its current value back into the past. And I think one thing that Bitcoin has shown is that you don't need to start with any intrinsic value. Bitcoin, when it was created, wasn't useful for anything. It was just this digital 
token that you couldn't do anything with. And that's a pretty interesting thing from the point of view of economics. I don't think there were any economic school of thought, including the Austrians, predicted that something like this is possible, that you could manufacture money out of thin air, which has no other use. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I want to debunk some misconceptions people people have about Bitcoin. One is that money needs to have uh, intrinsic value. People often say, look, I use gold for jewelry or I, I don't know, whatever use people have for gold. What's precisely wrong about that statement? Just empirically wrong. If you look at history, there have been a lot of monies which had no value at all and no use value. I mean, there are a lot of Indian tribes that used beads, which didn't have any value as just sort of symbolic value. And I think with Bitcoin, Bitcoin's an example of something that's being used as, you know, it's used as a store of value. It's used in some cases as a medium of exchange. It has no value at all. It's just a digital token. So I think empirically, it's just obviously false. But I, I think my economic explanation of this is some monies do have some base level use value, or at least historically they've had some. But the thing which really defines something as money versus a regular good is that it has this monetary premium. It's it's the value that it has, the purchasing power that it has that isn't explained by its use value. And all monies have a monetary premium. And this is what I would call the bubble the bubble part of money. And I think all monies in history are basically bubbles, and they're bubbles that don't necessarily need to pop. The, the value is that they, they're useful for other purposes opposed from their intrinsic or use value, and and that's, that's, that's measured by their monetary premium. And so you look at something like gold, and I think the you know, the price of gold today is something like $1,200 an ounce. I think the, the use value component of that is probably only $100, like people using it, the dental uses and in electronics. There is a fairly large jewelry use case for gold, but that, in a way, I mean, this is actually pretty big in India. That, in a way, is almost a store of value use case, which is a monetary use case of gold. You, people in India typically keep their savings in a form that they can wear because Indians have a long history of distrusting their government's ability to manage money. And, and rightly so, the government has really pursued very, very poor economic policies, which is why people in India, there's still a lot of people living in abject poverty. So so Indians don't don't, don't trust paper money. And so they use that jewelry is a form of savings. What about the, what's the most succinct explanation for why Bitcoin is superior to gold? Gold is great because its supply is not controlled by any government. And the problem with money being controlled by a government is that it's sort of subject to political whims and governments can pursue policies which are not economically sensible, but seem politically sensible in the short term. Gold, on the other hand, is, it can't be created out of thin air. It's very, very hard to produce. And so because it's hard to produce, it means that people will want to save in it. You don't want to save in pesos because they're very easy to produce. And so it's gold is a good way to, to save. But gold still does have inflation. It, it, miners can produce more gold over time. And you can have gold shocks. It could be possible, for instance, that someone like Elon Musk discovers a really great way to mine asteroids, and suddenly the gold supply on Earth explodes. And then gold is worthless. It just becomes like sand. It's it's no more valuable than sand. So that's one disadvantage of gold versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin supply is strictly limited to 21 million Bitcoins. The other major advantage, I think is even bigger, is that you can transmit Bitcoin to other people across the other end of the world almost instantly at very, very low cost. And and that's never been possible before in the history of the world, that you can transmit a significant sum of money to another person on the other side of the earth without using a trusted intermediary, such as a bank or a government. So now it's possible to send, say, $5 million to a person in Bangladesh if you, or a village in Bangladesh if you wanted to do this. And you don't need to go through a, a bank or a charity or anything like that. You can just send it to someone as easily as you can send an email. That's pretty profound thing that's never been true. And I'm honestly really surprised that more economists have not paid attention to this. I think it's the most important innovation in in money for a thousand years. And why do you think they haven't? Have they just not understood it, or they understand it but disagree? Or I think I think, I think a lot, lot of people, people it, for a lot of economists, it fits outside of their mental model of 
what's even possible. And it's not just true for our Keynesian economists, but it's also true for Austrian economists. There are people like Pete, Peter Schiff who believe that money has to be a commodity. It has to be something like gold. And so if you see something that you don't think is possible or shouldn't be possible, you tend to dismiss it or, or say it's a scam or, or say this is a Ponzi scheme or it's going to go away. It's, it's easier to dismiss it than it is to understand it, unfortunately. So there are, there are very few prominent economists who I have seen who really understood why Bitcoin even works. How is it possible that someone could have created this new internet digital money out of thin air and it has value and that you know Bitcoin is worth more than $100 billion today? That's a very, very profound question, but I, I haven't seen any major economists give a satisfactory answer to that. What, what big mis- misconception do you think people have about how money has emerged over time? Well, I think one of the problems I I see often is that people define money as a medium of exchange. And I I think that money actually evolves through a process to 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 gain certain roles that we recognize and it takes time it's, it starts off money typically starts off as a, a collectible or has ornamental value and then over time as more people recognize it to have that ornamental value it becomes a store of value people realize that hey if i if i hold some gold then it's going to be valued by other people later on in time so maybe instead of keeping my savings in wheat something that's perishable i'll keep it in gold which is not perishable and I know that it's going to be valuable later in time and I can exchange it. Once it's once it's widely valued in in a community then then it can start be become being used as a medium of exchange. The, that's the role that most people recognize money to have today. They recognize money as having today is as a medium of exchange and economists actually define money as a medium of exchange, a generally accepted medium of exchange. And then the final role is a, a unit of account which people price things in terms of. So when you go to the store, the goods that you see available for purchase are all priced in dollars and you calculate your profits and losses as a business in terms of dollars. So it becomes a unit of account. And I think these different roles are different stages in the evolution of money. That people see Bitcoin and they're like, oh, this is obviously not money. It's not being used as a medium of exchange. You're not, you don't see people going to the grocery store and buying bread with Bitcoin. And my point is that this evolution, evolution takes time and it's a process that you know potentially could take decades for gold this process took centuries and so uh i think there's a certain level of criticism just because it doesn't meet the definition of money and this is not paying attention to the fact that money takes time to evolve into a fully fledged money if this works if if bitcoin becomes becomes money in some form who stands to lose and lose the most i think the people who stand to lose the most are the people who have savings in competing monetary goods. Because basically, something like Bitcoin represents a pool of savings. You have a global pool of savings, and the savings are stored in various stores of value. Gold is one store of value, which represents about $8 trillion worth of savings. Bitcoin's a pool of savings represents about 100 and something billion right now. Short-term government bonds is another place that people store value. And, and as Bitcoin becomes money, money, it the pool of savings drains out of these other vehicles then goes into Bitcoin. So if you had money in gold and Bitcoin became like the de facto store of global store of value, then a lot of the value would get drained out of gold and go into Bitcoin. And this is kind of what happened in the 19th century when silver was demonetized. People who held silver lost a lot of their savings because there was a point in time when both silver and gold were used as money. Then eventually gold completely took over for some reasons, some reasons related to the market and also some government intervention. And if you were someone who held silver, you lost your savings essentially because the monetary premium for silver basically shrank to zero and its value went all the way back to its use value, which is much, much lower than its total value with the monetary premium. So if you if you hold government bonds, if you hold gold, if you hold a competing monetary good i think you should be definitely afraid of bitcoin and i think this is partly where some of the animosity from gold bugs comes from towards bitcoin they realize that it's a a direct competitor and this is why you know i was a gold bug i this is why i bought some bitcoin way back in the day is because i sort of viewed it as an insurance policy against the gold that i own if bitcoin becomes money then gold is in deep trouble you know you obviously look at the history of money in order to understand cryptocurrencies today 
There's also a, a big group of people that look at the history of the internet to understand how should we look at cryptocurrencies and how we should look at where they'll evolve over time. And that's predominantly the Silicon Valley crowd, and Jason Horowitz perhaps, and, and Chris Dixon leading leading the pack there. Are you are you where are you, if at all, sympathetic to that view? So I, I think I would define it as the Silicon Valley mindset is a very entrepreneurial mindset, whereas the Bitcoin slash gold mindset is adversarial. And this is why I think so few people in Silicon Silicon Valley ever really understand why gold had any value. You know, a typical entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, let's say they give the Warren Buffett answer. It's like a useful, useless rock that people sort of dig up and move from place to place. Why are we doing that? And it's because I, I don't think they fully understand the value that money has. Money is a is a good which is uniquely suited to trust minimization. It allows people to trade with each other who don't trust each other or who don't even know each other. And so it has a very, very important role in an economy. And it's really interesting. You, you mentioned Fred Wilson found out about Bitcoin very early on. And he's an entrepreneur. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he his entrepreneurial mindset is sort of focused on the medium of exchange role of money. So he found out about Bitcoin and he was like, oh, this is the greatest medium of exchange ever. It has zero fees and it's really cheap. It's going to replace credit cards and we're going to fix the financial system and all that kind of thing. And so he he would buy these small dribs and drabs of Bitcoin and use it as a medium of exchange. Like he'd buy a bit of Bitcoin and use it to buy a t-shirt or something. You can go and look at his blog. And I, you know, I don't mean to make fun of Fred. Like I said, he's a brilliant guy, but I think he completely misunderstood Bitcoin as money. Bitcoin as digital gold and and why that's important. And so if if you understood that, and I know some people in Silicon Valley who are also brilliant, who did understand that, who did have that entrepreneurial mindset, they just went out and bought a bunch of Bitcoin and just sat on it and said, I don't want to spend this. This is gold. This is this is like nascent money. It's it's a money that's at the earliest stages of its monetization. It's not even in the store of value phase it's in the collectible phase and so if this does become money it's going to be way way more valuable than it is now so my goal is to get as much bitcoin as possible and just sit on it and and that's not that's a very different mindset to silicon valley mindset which is like how do i build stuff on this like how do i build paypal on on bitcoin and how do i use it as a medium of exchange to buy beanie babies or t-shirts online and and so I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley missed the true opportunity of Bitcoin, and they're still pursuing that other that other sort of more entrepreneurial opportunity with things like Ethereum because they they don't get it. They still don't get like why why is gold valuable? Like why should I put money in Bitcoin? It doesn't do anything. It just sits there. And yeah, I think I think it's because you know it, only if you or someone in your family has gone through a real geopolitical crisis where you've been in a country like Venezuela or Zimbabwe and you've seen your family's savings, generational savings just disappear overnight because of poor policy. Or if you are someone who escaped the Nazis in in Europe and your your savings were confiscated and you came to a new country like America without any savings, people like that have a visceral understanding why something like gold, if it was hidden away or buried or something, could be valuable. It, it could be something that saves your entire family. And that's not the same mindset as Silicon Valley. People in Silicon Valley are living in, in a part of the country which has seen prosperity for like multiple generations. And so it's not there's no sort of institutional historical understanding of 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 why something like gold could be useful. Can you believe both though? Can can you believe in in sound money and also the world world computer narrative? And, and do you believe in both? This is let's see how how should I answer this question? I think I think there are a lot of opportunities to to rebuild some of the financial system, and I I have I have nothing against that. But I think the problem is. A lot of people think that they can apply the use of a blockchain to, to solving this problem. They haven't really understood why a blockchain is useful. Um, the blockchain was invented for Bitcoin to solve a specific problem, which is trust minimization. How do you how do you coordinate a bunch of people together in in a situation where they don't trust each other? And and Satoshi used this insight to to allow people to transfer value between each other who didn't trust each other. And the the problem I have with the the concept of a world computer or, or Ethereum is that trust minimization is really not 
that important for computation. I mean, I'd say the vast majority of computation that happens, trust isn't a problem at all. And it, it's it's totally fine to have centralized services, which like a centralized search engine is totally fine. What um, about incentive alignment? When, when Chris Dixon writes about how you know, developers are often at, you know, conflicting incentives with, you know, building on top of Facebook or other centralized platforms or users don't capture any of the upside for the work that they do. Uh, and he talks about how crypto networks are a very elegant solution to align incentives across all stakeholders in a platform. Are you, do you think that's interesting or overstated or non-existent? I just I don't believe in that use case, and I think when you build into the protocol one of these protocols, you, the ability to to disperse tokens to certain people, you're inherently the, the, to the, to make those protocol changes possible, you're gonna have some centralized way of doing it, and and you you basically lose the value at that point when once you have a, a centralization to dis disperse tokens to certain people so that they're incentivized to work on the protocol, you may as well just use a database. A database is, is much more efficient, much cheaper, and much more scalable than a blockchain. Blockchains are useful in cases where trust is a really big problem, and they're good for social scalability. So blockchains actually very badly designed if you want to scale. If you wanted to put millions of transactions per second on Bitcoin, it's just not possible. It's, a blockchain can't do that kind of thing. The only way that you can do that kind of thing is with a centralized service. The other problem, I think, is that when you when you bake these incentives into a protocol, you kind of sully the protocol as well. You, you, you're creating winners at, at the expense of everyone else. Some amount of the supply is being given to a small group of people, and they benefit if that thing sort of goes up in value uh, i think there are better ways of doing it as well much more open ways of doing it which is just give them shares and have a cap table and make that public i, I just don't think blockchains are suited for that kind of thing so i, I want to close out here by by playing a little game uh, and, then, and then one more question about bitmain but i want to say a, a person and i want you to respond with like we did before the most charitable um interpretation of how they'd respond to this, you know, one hour conversation we've been having and, and then succinctly why they're why they're incorrect. So first is Milton Friedman. I think he would be fascinated by Bitcoin. I think if you go and look at some of the things he said in the late nineties, he actually predicted that something like Bitcoin would come about. I he he was more an advocate of having a digital money that had a fixed in, inflation schedule so that it basically inflated a small amount every year forever. Uh, so he might disagree with that. I, I think he was he was not a big believer in the gold standard. He thought that it would be better to have a small amount of inflation that was really predictable. Uh, but I think in general, he would be uh, a big supporter of Bitcoin. How about whoever's going to be the head of the Fed in the next 10 years, 10 years, 15 years, assuming we achieve hyper Bitcoinization? If there is even going to be a Fed, how do you think that? <laughs> I think they'll be very antagonistic to such a thing happening because it, it takes, it, it takes power from them and it really hampers their ability to control monetary policy and that's one of the things that central bankers didn't like about gold is that they couldn't control monetary policy it was controlled by how much gold was mined every year which is fairly constant they wanted to be able to intervene when there were bank runs the federal reserve is actually basically a bank controlled institution it's quasi private so it's it's not really a public institution like the u.s treasury and so i I think they want to be able to intervene and something like Bitcoin prevents that. And I don't think, I think they will probably become much more antagonistic towards Bitcoin as it, it, its adoption grows. And right now it's too small for them to care about, but give it another five years and they'll start getting interested. And is the, is the crux of is the charitable interpretation of why they think them intervening is a good thing is because they can help offset some of the business cycles you were describing earlier. And, you know, Bitcoiners' responses, they can't or, or, or creates additional problems. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they want to intervene to, to save us from the business cycle. And my point of view is this. I think they're the cause of the business cycle. It's kind of like someone breaking your leg and they're giving you some crutches afterwards and say, see, I helped you. I gave you the crutches. But it's like, no, you broke. You broke my leg in the first place, so please don't help me. I'm fine. Just leave me alone. Right. How about this? Mises, yes. Um, he, I think, would be the great supporter of Bitcoin. He is the ultimate advocate of, of sound money, and I think he would be absolutely amazed that this this is possible and that it has this, has similar attributes to gold, but it's much harder for governments to confiscate. It's much easier for people to transmit, and it's 
perfectly fixed in supply. He he always said that you money is a special type of good. It's not like other goods. Other goods, it's always better that you have more of them. It's always better that you have more bread. It's always better that you have more cars and always better that you have more computers. But he believed that money is not the. It's not the case. It's better that you have more of it. It's perfectly acceptable and actually desirable that you have a fixed quantity of money that never gets inflated and bitcoin gives you that there will never be more than 21 million bitcoins and so i think he's he's smiling in his grave somewhere what about hayek uh hayek was a student of mises um hayek's view was sort of slightly different his view is that we should just have competition amongst monies and we should just let the market decide you we should have things like gold competing against like Fiat monies and whatever's out there should all compete and people should get to choose. There shouldn't be any legal tender laws which say that only US dollars are acceptable for debts in the US. So he would say in the US we should have euros and yen and pounds and bitcoin and gold. They should all compete. Uh, I think he's slightly different to Mises who would say, no, you just need one good money. That's all you need. Uh, I'll name the last few people in succession. One is in Rand. The other is uh, Nassim Taleb. I think I think Ayn Rand, sort of in the objectivist tradition, would probably be happy with Bitcoin because it's something that's not it's not government produced, and uh, she wasn't really a student of economics, so she always deferred to Mises on economics. She was more of a philosopher and interested in political philosophy. Nassim Taleb, I, I think he is a big fan of Bitcoin. He wrote the foreword to Safer Dean's book, The Bitcoin Standard. I don't know if he fully understands why it's important. He, I think he made some comment about how even if Bitcoin doesn't succeed, we at least know how to do something like Bitcoin now. I think Safer Dean would say nothing is going to uh, overtake Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin or nothing else. If it fails, then this whole project fails. But I think in, in general, I think we'd see Bitcoin as something that's very anti-fragile. It's It's been attacked in so many different ways. It's Some people call it the, the currency of adversaries, people who are antagonistic towards each other. It's been people have all sorts of people have tried to destroy it, hack it, or, or regulate it, or ban it, and it just keeps going, which is why people call it the honey badger of currencies. Uh, what about Noam Chomsky or Marx? Any socialism love for Bitcoin? He is not economist, but I, I think he probably wouldn't be a fan of it. I know that there are some people, there are some people on the political left who are sort of fans of Chomsky who have shown interest in Bitcoin just because they, they like the idea that it might bring down the banking system. If, if banks don't have this monopoly on issuing money, then maybe they're, that's going to cause them to all die and, and they're very anti-corporation, anti-bank. So some of them like Bitcoin for that reason, but they're definitely not free marketeers. And, and Bitcoin is a product of the free market. And so I think in general, someone like Chomsky would be antagonistic and he would probably defer to a, a left-wing economist that he trusted, um, like Paul Krugman, who thinks Bitcoin is evil. Is he going to eat his words or you think he'll keep it, keep that, keep that view? No, I think he'll think it's evil till the day he dies. Uh, Marx is out, meaning not a fan? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I think Marx would hate, hate Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, he hated the gold standard as well. He was he he wanted the government to completely control money, and I, I he basically wanted money destroyed. He was he went even further. Not just government should just control money. It should first control it, and then it should destroy it, and then we should just sort of set up communes and you know trade with each other according to our uh, values and according to our needs. So yeah, he's he's he's. Not just anti-market, he's anti-money as a concept. And, and Bitcoin is hype. Some people say it's like the end of capitalism. Other people say it's like hyper-capitalism. Where do you stand there? I would say it's closer to hyper-capitalism. And one of the things I think is really interesting about Bitcoin is that it gives you a property right which doesn't require anyone to enforce that property right. So the reason that you have these institutions like like governments is is that how do you enforce the fact that that car is yours and this house is mine you need some entity which has the ability to enforce contract and the cool thing about bitcoin is no one needs to enforce contracts with bitcoin it's basically on market incentives and so it, it, it's it's the first type of good which it's equivalent to having a good which has a force shield around it and only the person who owns it can touch it. It's that for money. And so I, I think it's a, it is a hyper capitalist invention of the market. And I think it, there's an inevitability uh, to it that it, it's going to grow 
grow and become more powerful and become more widely adopted. And in that way, it's going to make all of the world more capitalist and more free. Uh, Larry Summers, if you're at all familiar with his views. Larry Summers, I met him when he came to Google. I'm familiar with his views, but he's, in my mind, he's just a bureaucrat. I, he's probably, he, he toes the bureaucratic line, which is that government should manage money and it's a bad idea if it doesn't. I, I don't think he would be a fan of Bitcoin. I think his views would be essentially the same as Paul Krugman's. Kanye West. I think he would love it. He's, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, I think Ye is idiosyncratic and uh, Bitcoin is idiosyncratic and I think there's a common connection and he probably owns some Bitcoin. Uh, I don't think he's probably as lucky as 50 Cent who, who sold some, some of his albums for Bitcoin back in like 2011 or something and then forgot about it and then discovered he had seven million dollars worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for, for rappers to, to, to embrace it and my passions to align. Bitmain IPO and what that means for Bitcoin Cash. Do you want to talk about it? So Bitmain filed for an IPO, and and one of one of the most interesting details that came out from this was that they had mined a huge amount of Bitcoin over the the last three years. I think something in the order of a hundred to two hundred thousand Bitcoin. And one of the details that were was buried in the IPO filing was that they had sold a huge fraction of their Bitcoin and essentially transferred it to Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin. Bcash, as I call it, and 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 the problem with this is that the price of Bcash has dropped a lot, and and they're they're sitting on huge paper losses on their Bcash, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of losses, and and the other problem is that they they are essentially the only major holder of Bcash that no one else really wants it in any size, and so they're holding this very liquid good and. And they can't sell it. How do they sell it? How do they sell a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin cash if no one wants to buy it? So this is, I think, the reason why they're filing for an IPO, because they're in a very um, capital-intensive business. Mining requires a lot of free capital to build factories, chip foundries, manufacture these mining rigs. And if you don't have free cash, then you're in a lot of trouble. Eventually, they're going to start competing with companies like uh, Samsung and Qualcomm and these giants. So their savings are held in something which is illiquid. I don't think they can sell it. If they try to sell it, it's going to collapse the price. And and that's something that they're really worried about because they created this, you know, copy of Bitcoin because they were worried that Bitcoin would scale in a way which wasn't good for their business. So what they wanted to do was replace Bitcoin with something that was good for their business. And it didn't have the attributes that people value Bitcoin for. Bitcoin is valuable to people because it's you know, it's like gold. It's very, very hard to change. And this copy that they made is very easy to change. They change it every few months. So it was just not valued. And, and, and they put, had it made a big, big bet transferring something valuable, Bitcoin, for something that's not valuable. And, and so they're, they're bag holders right now. And no one wants to buy their bag. Did you have any comment you wanted to make on, on what you think Facebook is going to do or could do? Facebook is going to enter the market sometime soon. David Marcus is heading up the operation at Facebook, and he's already built a team, I think, probably of 20 or 30 people. Facebook has tremendous assets to bring to bear in the market, so they could do something interesting. I personally am not concerned that they're going to build something that's going to be a threat to Bitcoin, because I think it's it's more likely that they build something which where they exert a lot of control over it, and it's not, in a sense, going to be a competitor. It's going to be something different. Or, or they could just build a payment rail on top of cryptocurrencies, and then it's something like the equivalent of Visa or MasterCard, which they don't compete with gold at all they're completely different markets and and so my view is that facebook entering the market is not a threat to bitcoin but they have make no mistake they have very talented people they have a lot of money and they have the potential to do something pretty interesting thank you so much for coming on this podcast it's been a great episode thanks eric talk to you soon vj all right bye If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.